we're not sure if he traveled by cover of darkness because of the dangerous nature of his mission or if he just went boldly in broad daylight. But we do know, we do know that the great prophet Samuel was nervous when God came to him and said, I want you to anoint a new king of Israel. His nerves were warranted, they were justified. There was already a king who was sitting on the throne, alive and well. His name was Saul, but he had been rejected by God as king. And God came to Samuel and said, I've got a new person that's equipped for the job and I want you to go and anoint them as king. God told Samuel, okay, I know it's going to be a little bit contentious. I mean, it can be hazardous to your health to anoint a new king when one is already on the throne. So why don't you just take a heifer with you and tell people that you're traveling from Ramah to Bethlehem 10 miles in order to make a sacrifice. But when you get there, go to the house of Jesse and you're going to anoint one of his kids to be the next king overall of Israel. And Samuel did just that. He took his heifer and he took his horn with oil in it and he traveled that 10 miles, asked Jesse to bring his sons in front of him and Jesse brought seven out of his eight sons to stand in front of Samuel. Each one paraded through and each one looked the part. But Samuel found out something really core to God's character that day that God didn't look at the outward appearance, but that God looked at the what? The heart. And so each one of those seven sons was rejected and Samuel said to Jesse, do you have any more boys that I could look at? And he said, well, we've got one more. He's sort of the runt of the litter. He's out in the field. I'm pretty sure you don't want him. He's just a shepherd, but I guess we can go get David. And Samuel said, I'm not sitting down until I see him. Here's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12. It says, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said to him, arise and anoint him for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I mean, have you ever had a day that just dramatically changed your life? One that you measure time by, the before and after? Maybe it was getting married or having kids or having grandkids. This is that day for David uh, before I was anointed as king over all of Israel and after. And notice the way that the author of 1 Samuel ties together his anointing and the fact that God's spirit rushed over him. Maybe, just maybe, it's this day that comes to David's mind as he begins to write, Psalm 23. If you have your Bible, you can open there. If you're following along in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 474. And this is the way that the next stanza in this epic poem reads. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Is David writing this great poem thinking of that day when Samuel took that horn of oil and anointed him as king over all of Israel? Or, or is he thinking of the fact that anointing originated with shepherds? It was an act that shepherds did for their sheep. See, shepherds would take oil and they would rub it in the palms of their hands and then they would massage it into the skin of the face of their sheep in order to prevent insects from burrowing into their ears and into their skin and making them sick and potentially leading them towards death. Or was David picking up where he left off in this psalm? You prepare a table before me. Remember, we talked about it last week. God is also the great host, not just the good shepherd. And hosts would often anoint their guests before a meal. It was the closest thing they had to soap in the ancient world. Every good guest would anoint the participants of their banquet upon arrival. Well, whether it's David being anointed as king or him reminded that God is the good shepherd and takes care of his sheep or that God is the great host. Or maybe, maybe David's thinking about all of those streams converging into one. Do you think that this word anointing, this idea has significance for King David? The right answer is yes. Yeah, layers and layers and layers of significance. So what I'd like to do is walk you through a tour day anointing in the Bible, okay? And we're gonna hit on just a few key passages this morning. And there's somebody in here, I know there's somebody in here that sells essential oils and they're like, finally, we're gonna talk about the medicinal value of oil. Wonderful, it's about time. Okay. Um, oil, the anointing with oil begins in Genesis chapter 31, verse 13. And it's in this place that Jacob, the great patriarch, anoints a rock and reminds himself, certainly God is in this place. And I didn't know it. It was his way of marking the presence of God. It was symbolic of the fact God is here. In Exodus chapter 28, we see this um, idea and symbol moved forward where the priests were anointed to serve in the temple. They were set apart, declared to be holy. Fast forward a few chapters in Exodus and in Exodus chapter 40, you see the nation of Israel anointing, physically anointing the, the tabernacle itself, setting it aside as sacred space, places where people would come to meet with God and encounter his presence in a unique and very real way. And then finally, we see all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that prophets and priests and kings were all anointed, set apart, and declared to be special for service to the Most High God. Anointing has both symbolic and real power that's attached to it. And it's still a symbol that we use today. A number of years ago, my brother-in-law bought his first motorcycle, much to my mother-in-law's chagrin. He parked it in the garage. And when he came into the house, my mother-in-law went and got her anointing oil, snuck out to the garage 
anointed his motorcycle, prayed over it, and then came back into the house like nothing had happened. Now, my brother-in-law went into the garage and looked at his new, brand new motorcycle, came inside and said, what in the world is all this goop all over my motorcycle? <laughs> he then got on his bike and because of the oil slipped off of it. And no, I'm just kidding. That part's, <laughs> that part is totally made up. But we utilize this symbol of anointing and oil even still today. And in some Christian circles, the terminology is fairly popular. We would say that some really amazing speakers are anointed. Or worship leaders, that when they lead worship, it just seems like God shows up in a unique and special way. They're anointed. We would say that people like Billy Graham are anointed. Tens and thousands, untold number of people come to faith through his ministry. Or Mother Teresa, anointed, not even five feet tall, spends most of her life in India, and every single person in this room knows her name. Or somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., who God used to shape and move our nation to be more of a people of justice and love and equality. He stepped into a moment where our nation needed a voice. He was anointed by God. Or maybe we look at some of the worship leaders that, that, that play and lead and write songs that just seem to stir something in our soul. Maybe it's Hillsong, or maybe it's whomever, you fill in the blank for you, anointed by God. And, and then there's some sports figures that are just <laughs> anointed. Peyton Manning, especially when he was a Bronco, I mean, just carried the anointing of Jesus. But what's interesting, what's interesting is that the New Testament uses this term in a little bit of a different way. We use it as somebody who's unique and set apart and different, but the New Testament puts a different twist on this old covenant type of an idea and word. Here's the way that the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said this, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has, say it with me, church, anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Did you catch it? Who's anointed? Yeah, anybody who has the spirit of God, who has the spirit of God living in them? Anyone who's a follower of Jesus has the spirit of God dwelling inside of them. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit and therefore you are anointed. Anointing is special, don't get me wrong, but it's so special that God has not reserved it for a select few, but that he's given it to all of his followers. I was going to say, as my, in my study this week, I was going to say anointing that was once reserved for the elite is now extended to everyone. But I think that actually misses the nuance of what's going on. You see, anointing is still reserved for the elite. It's still reserved for the prophets, for the priests, for the kings and 
for the queens. It's still reserved for people who are special, but please lean in for just a moment. That now includes everybody who's a follower of Jesus. Uh, Peter would write it like this to the churches. He would say this, but you, Emmanuel Faith, follower of Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. By the way, this is where we get the idea of the priesthood of all believers. A holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. It's the way the silver-tongued preacher Charles Spurgeon put it when he said, every believer, every believer, regardless of gender, race, or status, every believer is an anointed king. Yeah, I'm convinced that we can recite Psalm chapter 23. He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows, and we would be 100% theologically accurate. If you're in Christ, you are anointed. And, and embracing that anointing is the very thing that leads to empowered living. Contrary to what we often think, what you don't know can in fact hurt you. If you don't know that's who you are, if you don't know that that's your identity, if that's what God has done in and for you, if you don't know you're anointed, you may just not live like it. So if I'm, if I'm you, I'm going, okay, Paulson, how? What does it really look like for anointing to lead to empowering. I'm so glad you asked that because that's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. There's a number of things from the Old Testament and the New that tells us why this anointing is so important, this anointing that you have and that I have. Exodus chapter 40 verse 9. We're talking about the tabernacle, the physical space that the nation of Israel would gather in to worship. And it writes this, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all of its furniture so that it may become what? Holy. So that it might be set apart. They're creating sacred space. Places that they would expect to meet with the divine, that God would show up in unique and real and powerful ways. Places that their whole nation would gather for worship and people would come from miles around because of the fact that it was set apart, that it was holy. But then in the New Testament, Paul starts writing to the churches and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or you, do you not know that your what? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, just a quick time out. We can read this and go, okay, well, that makes sense. The Spirit of God lives in us. I've heard that before. But when the Apostle Paul is writing this, most people date the book of 1 Corinthians between 53 and 57 AD. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was not destroyed until 70 AD. So Paul's writing to a church saying, you are the what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Or miles away from them, there's still a temple that's set up. They're still doing temple sacrifice. There's still the Holy of Holies that exists where they go into and they pray. And what Paul says to the church is that temple has nothing on you. You are sacred space. You are the place that God dwells. And you don't have to go anywhere to meet with God because he lives within you. What does anointing mean? It means that you are consecrated for holiness. You are now set apart as a dwelling place for the divine. Pause for a moment and take that in. I had a chance a number of years ago to go to the great cathedral of Notre Dame before it partially burned down and I walked into it and I looked up, 115 feet in the air was the ceiling, ornate Gothic architecture that surrounded the entire building, murals everywhere. And there was just this sense of holiness. God is in this place. How many, how many have been there? It's remarkable, isn't it? And what Paul would write back to you and say is, yeah, that's, that's wonderful, but Notre Dame has absolutely nothing on you. It's amazing and it's beautiful, but you are better. You have his promises. You carry his provision and you host his presence. Now, for some of you, that might mean that there needs to be a little bit of a clearing of the deck in our lives to say, God, if that's true, there's some things that I need to repent of. There's some things that I need to turn from. There's some cleansing of this temple that I need to do. The second idea, though, comes from Exodus chapter 28, and it says this. You shall put them on Aaron, speaking of the clothing that he would wear as a priest and your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall what? Anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. Let's say this last phrase together as a church, that they may serve me as priests, that they might serve me as priests. Uh, that word priest literally means bridge builder. People who would stand in between God and other people and that they would build a bridge. They would make a way for people to interact with God. They were anointed and called for service. And so are you. This is no different. So are you. Now, this idea of calling, I think, can sometimes be a little bit muddy for us. So I'd like to spend a few moments unpacking what do we mean by this word called for service? Here's the first thing that we mean. If you are anointed, if you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of God dwells in you. You are not designed to live on the sideline. You are designed to get into the game. God has a purpose and has a role for you to play in your life. Now, We've often used this for calling into ministry, specifically working in a church or going to the mission field. That's all wonderful and good, but it's not limited to that. You might be called to adoption. In fact, it's Orphan Sunday today all across America. 
You might be called to be a mom or a dad. You might be called to be a business owner. You might be called to be an engineer, or you might be called to be an advocate or a peacemaker. I don't know how you're called or what you're called to. I just know that if the spirit of God lives in you and you're anointed, you're also called. Here's the second thing I would say. As you begin to explore your calling, assume that God has a calling for you right where you are, as you are, and who you are. We sometimes imagine that calling will be a someday, maybe, once we get to a certain point, then we can step into our calling. I'm convinced that God has a calling for you right where you are. You probably don't need to move to explore your calling, but every calling does require movement. Third, here's what I, my encouragement to you, is commit to exploring and learning about who God has uniquely wired and designed you to be. At the church that I was at in Colorado, we used this threefold method for, for exploration. There was three words we used, stones, wires, and fires. And in working with young adults at our church who are trying to seek God and figure out where he was leading and what he was doing in their life, we, we talked about the stones, the, the milestones in their life, the events that have happened the ways that they've been shaped, because those aren't by accident. The, the wiring that they had. What are the natural things that you're good at? God wants to use those. And then finally, what are the fires in you? What are the passion points in you? The fire in your bones where you go, this is wrong or this is right. And I'm passionate about this and want to give my life for it. See, Emmanuel Faith, we are not all anointed for the same service, but we are all anointed with the same spirit. And his spirit that lives in you and knit you together has a unique role for you to play. I love the way that Ruth Haley Barton put it. She said this, we see with new eyes that God's calling in our life is so tightly woven into the fabric of our being, so core to who we are, that to ignore it or refuse it would be to jeopardize our well-being. It's just so much a part of who God's created us to be. You are anointed and called for service. Third, Jesus's friend, John, picks up the same idea in writing to the churches. In 1 John chapter 2, he says this, but you have all been, say it with me, church, anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Skip down a few verses, and this is what you'll read. But the anointing that you've received from him abides in you. It hasn't left you. It remains. It's made its home in you, quite literally. And you have no need for anyone that should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, some people have taken these passages of scripture and said, well, see, we don't need anybody to teach. There's two problems with that. Number one is that the letter that John is writing is in fact a teaching in and of itself. And so if what John means is you never need anybody to teach you, he's contradicting himself within his own writing. 
But secondly, we know really clearly in the scriptures that there are some people who are gifted and called to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, and if they don't have a role to play in the body of Christ, then why would God call them and equip them for that? Now, I think John's just simply echoing what he wrote in his gospel account and what he heard his friend and Messiah Jesus say to him. When the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. So that means whether it's me talking or you listening to a podcast or you reading a book, that it's not me who teaches and it's not the author who teaches, but if something sinks deeply into your soul and changes you, it's because God shows up, not because I do or anybody else does. You're anointed. And that means that you are equipped for growth. And the fact that you're anointed and equipped for growth means that you lack absolutely nothing that you need for life and godliness. Now it is possible to quench the spirit, to push the spirit back, but I want to remind you this morning that it's not about how much of the spirit you have, but it's about how much of you the spirit of God has. How obedient are you to him? How willing to say yes are you to him? See, our problem isn't not about access to the Spirit, but alignment with Him. So if you're here today and you feel stuck, if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, well, Ryan, it's been a long time. If I'm equipped for growth, it's just been a long time since I've felt that and seen that in my life. Here's a practice that you could do this week. Just spend some time and get quiet and ask Jesus, Jesus, what's one step of obedience that you're asking me to take? And then listen. And then, and this is going to be, I know, this is going to be, it's crazy. But then, just do what he says to do. See, because it's our obedience that opens us up to the Spirit's work and allows us to grow and change and be transformed in Christ. If you're anointed, which you are if you're a follower of Jesus, you are, you are designed to be transformed. That's your trajectory. And finally, here's what we'd say, the last thing. Comes out of the book of James chapter five. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save, or some translations would say heal, the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Keep that word, that phrase in your mind for just a moment. Will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Our elders take this passage of scripture very seriously and very literally. We pray on a regular basis for people, anoint them with oil and ask that Jesus would miraculously restore what's broken and heal what's sick. We believe that because of his anointing, we are destined for healing. <laughs> but I don't know about you, but I read this passage of scripture, which seems so absolute. You pray God heals, and I go, 
what about the times where you don't? Is anybody with me? What about the times where you don't show up and heal in the way that we want? Two words about that. Number one, just because God doesn't heal all the time doesn't mean he doesn't heal some of the time. So keep asking, keep praying, and trust that he's sovereign in it all. The early church did this, and they believed that God would work and move through it. It was part of their regular practice. But second, remember that phrase, raised up? I think James is intentionally pointing us to a day and time that we would call resurrection where there is no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. The old order of things will pass away and behold, the new will come. You won't always have the opportunity to pray for healing. You know that, right? This is a limited time offer because in the new heaven and new earth, you won't need to pray for it. Somebody say, amen, amen. The church that I served at in Colorado, we were practiced the same thing that our elders do here. We were praying for somebody and they came in to meet with us to specifically ask for prayer for a job and anointing for healing on a back that had been in pain for a number of years. We started to pray for this woman and I realized that I had forgotten to get my vial of oil. And so I looked at my associate pastor and said, I forgot the oil, will you go get it? And he said, oh, sure. Well, he snuck out into the closest office, which happened to be our maintenance man's office, who was also an elder. And so we felt good about that. And so he came back in and he made eye contact with me and I with him and he held up a bottle of Old Spice cologne. (laughs) And I looked at him and said, absolutely, let's do this, okay? And so we were praying for this woman and he (coughs) coughed and squirted and used the old spice and anointed her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all I can tell you is that within two weeks, she had a job that was better than any job she's ever had and her back felt better than it had in years. I share that to tell you not that we're gonna start anointing with old spice, but to tell you it's not about the oil. It's about the power of Jesus that shows up when we call on his name and the oil is simply a symbol of his presence and his power with us. Friend, you are anointed as a follower of Jesus and embracing that anointing leads to empowered living that then launches you into his world to make an eternal impact. We're gonna end our service in a little bit of a different fashion today. I'm gonna invite our elders and our prayer team to begin making their way forward. And what we'd like to do is end our time together with a time of anointing. And I'm gonna invite you in just a moment, if there's something that you're asking Jesus for today, and maybe it's one of these things, God, remind me of the fact that I'm holy and set apart for you. God, remind me that I'm called into service and maybe I'm stuck and I just don't know where to invest my time, my talents and my treasure. Or maybe you just feel like it's just been a long time since you've grown and you wanna be reminded of the spirit of God that lives in you and that you're anointed. Or maybe it's a physical or an emotional or a spiritual healing that you're asking for. 
But I'm gonna invite you in just a moment to come forward and our elders and prayer team will just put a little bit of oil on their thumb and they'll ask you what they can pray for you for. And I would ask you to be brief, just give a really 30,000 foot view of what's going on. They'll pray for you. And then they'll take a little bit of oil on their thumb and just anoint your forehead in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I know this is a step of faith, but I wanna invite you to take it, to come and to believe that Jesus wants to shower his grace and his power and his mercy down on you.